Well, we are in the second chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. It was a church, as you know by now, made up of young believers who were young in the faith, not necessarily in age. In all likelihood, they'd all been Christians less than a year. Paul wrote this letter to them to comfort, encourage, and reassure and remind the Thessalonian believers what he had taught them about the end times when he had been with them. For as you know, Thessalonica had become the first place in the Roman Empire where the government was beginning to persecute Christians. They were losing their homes, losing their possessions. They were being beaten and imprisoned, even killed, even martyred for following Jesus. And in the midst of this tribulation, these trials and troubles, Satan had sent men who were false teachers and false prophets into the church. Someone had even forged a letter from Paul and was passing it around the church, claiming that it was authentic. And the discouraging and deceiving message from all of these messengers of Satan was, hey guys, you're not just going through tribulation. You're not just going through trouble and trials, but, but you're actually in the great tribulation. You are now in that time in history when God is gonna pour out his wrath and judgment on the earth, the time that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And so the Thessalonian believers were, were very confused because based on what Paul had taught them, they were under the impression that the church was gonna be removed from the earth in this event known as the rapture of the church before the day of the Lord began, before God's wrath began to pour out on the earth, before all of that stuff. In our last message, we heard Paul tell them that they didn't need to worry. They hadn't missed the rapture. They were not in the day of the Lord. And he went on to remind them that when he had been with them, he had told them about two things that needed to happen before the day of the Lord could begin. Firstly, the church had to be raptured. It had to be removed from the earth. And then secondly, the man known as the Antichrist had to be revealed. And then Paul went on to explain that Satan's power on the earth is restrained to a certain degree by the presence of the church on the earth. Because inside every believer is the Holy Spirit, so everywhere the believer is, that's where the Holy Spirit is on the earth in a powerful way. And in fact, the presence of the church, believers in Jesus on the earth, means that Satan cannot execute his antichrist strategy until the church is removed from the earth meaning that the Antichrist cannot be revealed, cannot rise to power until the rapture has taken place. And that's where we pick things up today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. So keep your pen handy. We're going to underline some things. Verse 8, it says, and then. Underline the word then. That means after the church has been removed from the earth in the rapture. And then, after that, the lawless one, that's another name for the Antichrist, will be revealed. So as we mentioned last time in our study, although the New Testament scriptures tell us over and over again to be watching for, hoping for, longing for the return of Jesus, the scriptures never tell us to be watching for the coming of Antichrist because we're not going to be here. The church is going to be removed from the earth. So there's really no point in trying to guess who he is. Doesn't stop people trying, but there's no point. Now Paul's about to remind the Thessalonians and us what we most need to know about the Antichrist. And what we most need to know is how his story is going to end. This is also what those who don't believe in the Lord when the rapture takes place 
will most need to know as they frantically search for Bibles because they heard their friends, their family, their coworkers talk about God, talk about the rapture, and after it happens, they'll be scrambling to try and find a Bible to understand what has happened. This is in here so that they'll know what they most need to know about the Antichrist. Paul says, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, when you underline breath of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I love that. Paul says, this is what you most need to know about the Antichrist. He's gonna be completely destroyed by Jesus, by the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. At the end of that seven-year time period, at the end of the Great Tribulation, the event known as the Second Coming will take place when Jesus will return to the earth with us, his church, to establish his kingdom, sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and rule the earth for a thousand years in what's known as the Millennial Kingdom. And when Jesus returns to the earth, as Antichrist is wreaking havoc, and they face off, there will be no battle. There will be no epic slugfest, no shot for shot contest at all. Antichrist will be destroyed, quote, by the breath of his mouth, Jesus just speaking a word and the brightness of his coming. The glory of Jesus will simply overwhelm and overpower Antichrist. He'll simply show up and be like, you're done. And he's done. That's it. There's no fight. There's no battle. So would you write this down? Antichrist will be destroyed by the words and presence of Jesus. By the words and presence of Jesus. And this is interesting because from what we can gather in the scriptures, we see this in the Old and in the New Testaments, Jesus is able to control the amount of his glory that he reveals to people when he appears to them. Because if he cranked up the dial all the way, like glory to 11, his glory would literally just destroy anybody who wasn't as holy and perfect as him. They wouldn't have the capacity to even be in his presence. He just ceased to exist. This is one of the many reasons we're gonna have resurrected bodies in eternity because we'll need them just to be able to be around God. If you imagine if you went to Chernobyl or somewhere like that that had a nuclear disaster, you'd have to wear one of those suits just to be in the presence of radiation. Well, like imagine that times a billion, trillion, million to the point where there's no suit you can wear. You actually need an entirely new type of body to just be in the presence of God. That's how incredible his glory is. Jesus appeared to his disciples and other believers following his death and resurrection, and he interacted with them appearing as pretty much a normal man outside of a few things that people can't do like teleport and walk through walls and that sort of stuff. But when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul was knocked to the ground and struck blind by the overwhelming light of Jesus' glory. He turned it up just a little bit when he interacted with Saul. And then there's this moment that I love so much, I have to mention it whenever I get the chance. On the night that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this entourage of several hundred men that come for them, led by Judas Iscariot. There's temple guard troops, there's officers from the Sanhedrin, there's Roman soldiers, and they're all there to arrest Jesus. And in John's Gospel, it tells us that Jesus walks straight up to the group being led by Judas, and he asks them, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And in the original language, 
Jesus responds by saying, I am, I am. And if you know about the Old Testament, you'll know that I am is the literal name of God by which God refers to himself. For example, when he introduces himself to Moses through the burning bush, he identifies himself as I am. So in that moment, Jesus tells him, not only is he Jesus of Nazareth, but he is also I am. He's saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, but I'm also God. And then John writes this, and now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. So here's what happens. All of the soldiers and armed men are are knocked to the ground by the breath of his mouth. When Jesus reveals just a hint of his glory for a second, he says, I am, and he allows his glory to just be turned up just a little bit for that split second. And just that split second, boom, knocks every one of those hundreds of soldiers and men to the ground. And Jesus does that in that moment because he wanted to make sure everyone understood. He said, listen, there's hundreds of you, but it, it literally wouldn't matter if there are millions of you. None of you are arresting me right now unless I want it to happen. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so he said, just so we're clear, I'm choosing to go with you. You're not taking me against my will. And at the second coming, the Antichrist will be destroyed by Jesus just turning up the dial on his glory. He'll be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. What everyone most needs to know about Antichrist is that his end will be destruction. It's already written, it's already guaranteed. As you might recall, the word antichrist doesn't just mean anti from the Greek as in against Christ, but it also means in place of Christ. It's it's the spirit that constantly tempts us to replace Jesus on the throne of our lives with something else, like ourselves a lot of the time. So how is it that the antichrist spirit is destroyed in our lives? With the breath of his mouth, that's the word of God, and the brightness of his coming his presence. We know that when we allow anything other than Jesus to rule our lives, the result is always disappointment, it's frustration, it's hurt, it's emptiness. So what do you do when Satan shows up and starts whispering, hey, you know what's really gonna make you happy, and you know God's not gonna give it to you, so so just do it. It'll be so great. You've got that idea in your head, just run with it. Will you respond with the word of God, the breath of his mouth? You say, Lord, your word says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light. So I know that you're the only real source of what is good and what's gonna be pleasing to me ultimately. Or Jesus, you said that you came so that I could have abundant life and I know that you're the only one who can actually give me the kind of life that I'm looking for. You see, the word of God destroys that antichrist spirit, but we need to understand that it's also about the brightness of his coming. It's about his presence. I'm gonna say I'm gonna get heavy, but I'll get heavier, okay, for this part. When you love the word of God, as we do in this church, we love the scriptures, but when you love the word of God, there's a danger of even our love of studying the scriptures becoming Antichrist. I know that sounds shocking, but it's true. You see, we we can fall so in love with the academic side of studying the Bible. 
coming to greater and greater understanding, digging up these, these hidden truths, wrapping our minds around the incredible accuracy of Bible prophecy that, that we begin to substitute an academic relationship with the Bible for an actual relationship with God. We substitute talking with the Lord with talking about the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was on the earth to those devout Jews who refused to believe in him? In John 5, he said this, it's on your outlines. This is so sobering and if you love the word of God, and you have scriptures memorized about the word of God, you better have this one memorized too. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You see, what Jesus said to them is he said, listen, the whole point of these scriptures is to point to me and lead you to me so that you can have life. And you're searching the scriptures and you're memorizing them and you're understanding them from all kinds of different angles, but you're missing the biggest thing that they were to point to me and now that I'm here, you don't even want me. Because you don't actually want me, you just want an academic pursuit. And that's what you're doing with the scriptures. You're just pursuing them academically instead of pursuing the one that the scriptures point to. And so if we're just growing in academic knowledge of the Bible and missing Jesus, then we're missing everything. We're missing everything. And the antichrist spirit incredibly is at work in us. Here's the point. The point is not, oh man, I'm with you, Jeff. I need to stop reading the Bible. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying our love for the scriptures should directly lead to a greater love for the Lord. If they don't, then we're reading them wrong. And we're missing the whole point. It should cause us to worship him more passionately. Man, can I tell you, it breaks my heart when you're in a church that loves the Bible or you visit one and, oh man, I love the Bible. I just love the Lord so much. Worship time comes and it's like, do you? Do you? It should cause us to talk to him more throughout the day. It should cause us to speak his word when we pray and when we intercede. It should make us love him more. So my question tonight is, does it in your life, in my life? Does your love for the word of God result in you loving God more? If not, you don't need more time in the word. You don't need to read another book. You need to spend some time maybe just walking and just talking with the Lord while you walk, sharing your life with him for a little bit. Maybe you need to just put some worship music on in your car or, or, or when you're home by yourself and just get into the presence of God through worship. Just relate to him. He's the goal. And, and Jesus indicated those devout Jews were pouring over the scriptures but missing the one who is the word made flesh. May we not do the same. The Antichrist spirit is destroyed in our lives by the breath of his mouth, the word of God, and the brightness of his coming, his presence. So would you write this down? Even a love of studying the scriptures can become Antichrist if we love it more than we love Jesus. If we love it more than we love Jesus. Now Paul tells us a little bit about 
how Antichrist is going to rise to such great power on the world political stage in a very short amount of time and why people are going to follow him. So he says this in verse nine. The coming of the lawless one, again, that's Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Did you actually hear hear what that said? That's pretty startling. Under the power of Satan, fully possessed by Satan, Antichrist is going to work miracles. We're not talking parlor tricks. He's not gonna be like, I will saw this woman in half. We're talking about supernatural, defying the laws of the natural universe, miracles. Legitimate miracles. I believe that the Bible points to these being both literal physical miracles and also political miracles. Prophetic scriptures in the Bible tell us that, that incredibly, Antichrist is actually going to rise from the dead following an assassination attempt. And he's gonna broker peace in the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs. And these astonishing miracles, both physical and political, will lead people ultimately to follow the Antichrist as God. They'll say, yeah, he's God. He's got the miracles to prove it. But Jeff, I thought, I thought only God could work physical miracles. Well, not so. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus when Moses goes before Pharaoh for the first time and tells him that he needs to set the Israelite people free from slavery? Do you remember how God had given Aaron, Moses' brother, this staff. He had told him, pick up this staff. And then he said, when you go before Pharaoh and he won't listen to you, throw your staff on the ground and it'll turn into a snake. Do you remember what happened after he did that? Pharaoh doesn't go, oh my goodness, I'm convinced by this sign. Truly, I'll do whatever you say. That's not what he does. Remember that Pharaoh has magicians in his court? And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, their names were Giannis and Yambres. And what did they do in response? Well, they, they've got their own staffs and they cast them down and they turn into snakes as well. They do the exact same thing. Well, then Aaron's snake eats their snakes, but, but that's what, what really happened. One is by the power of God, one is by the power of Satan, but they both actually happened. Now, outside of the shock that, that Satan can work miracles, What strikes me about that interaction between God and Satan played out between the proxies of Moses and Aaron and the magicians of Pharaoh's court is that none of the miracles Satan performs make anything better. Nothing he does actually helps. In fact, he just makes things worse. So you might recall their snake. Oh, cool, we can make more snakes. That's great, thanks for that. How about less snakes? In the first plague, you might remember then, Aaron walks around and he he holds his staff out over the waters in Egypt, over the rivers and the ponds, and they turn to blood. And the Egyptian magicians go and find some water themselves that hasn't been changed to blood, and they're able to do the same thing. They're able to turn the water into blood. In the second plague, Aaron holds out his staff toward the river, and a plague of frogs comes out of the river upon the land, and the magicians are able to do the same thing. They make frogs come out of the waters too. But by the third plague, lice, they can't do it. Lice is a very hard miracle to perform. It's just too technical. So they couldn't do that one. By the time the sixth plague hits though, boils. Remember that one? The magicians are covered in boils too. And here's what gets me. Even when they could duplicate the miraculous, all they did was make things worse. 
more snakes, more water turned into blood, more frogs. You know what would be useful? Less snakes. Water turned back into water from blood. Frogs gone. That would be useful. In reality, all they did is make things worse. And in the end, they were overwhelmed by the power of God, just like everybody else. Likewise, shall it be following the rapture. You see, Antichrist will appear to be full of power, performing wonders, miracles, brokering peace, rising from the dead. But in reality, all he's going to do is make things so much worse. Satan can work wonders. Satan can work miracles. And he often comes into our lives making that exact sales pitch, doesn't he? He says, listen, God's not the only show in town. Why spend your life serving Jesus when I can give you what you really want? Just compromise your integrity at work. Trade your family for a promotion. Just compromise your marriage. It would feel so good. And here's the problem, though. At the beginning, it might look like he's right. You might even try it for a little bit. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. You might try it and be like, whoa, this, this is legit. Giannis and Yambra seemed to match God's power when their staffs turned into snakes. And then as God began sending one plague upon another, upon Egypt, they seemed to match God's power. But in the end, they found themselves covered in boils, miserable, powerless, and in a terrible place because instead of listening to God, they followed the signs and wonders of Satan. So would you write this down? Satan's miracles ultimately lead to only greater pain and suffering. And as the world embraces Antichrist, everything just gets worse and worse and worse. And the same is true in our life. Might look great at the beginning, but the end result is always greater pain and suffering. Now a paradox of signs and wonders is that people always love to cry out, show me the evidence and I'll believe. Yet when people are shown evidence, when they're shown signs and wonders, the result isn't faith, it's just a hunger for more signs and wonders. It's like the man who, who proudly took his dog to the beach, whereas they're walking across the sand, he encountered a man sitting in a beach chair just taking in the view, watching the waves. So he says to the man in the chair, he says, hey, watch my dog, check this out. He grabs a stick and he throws it way out into the ocean. And the dog takes off running after the stick. Then the most incredible thing happens. This dog runs across the surface of the water. Straight across the surface of the water. Picks up the stick, turns around, runs back across the surface of the water. Right back to his master. Puts the stick right in his hand. The man looks at the guy in the chair and he says, what do you think about that? This is a pretty amazing dog, right? The man in the chair just shakes his head and says, your dog can't even swim. And so here's the point. We often think that if we could just do a good enough job sharing the evidence for Christianity, then everyone would believe. We often think, man, man if I could just get that pitch just right where I could share all the compelling evidence for the historical authenticity of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and if I could just package that all together in five minutes, it'd be such an unstoppable presentation, and then everyone I talked to about Jesus would believe because everyone just needs evidence, but that's not true. Evidence is not the reason people don't believe. People talked to Jesus. They talked to him. They heard him teach. They saw him perform miracles. 
They saw the blind see, the lame walk. They interacted with the people he healed. They went and had conversations with the guy he raised from the dead. And yet, almost none of them believed. Some people say, well, I'd believe in God if he came and revealed himself to me, stood right in front of me. Well, he did. He did. 2,000 years ago, he did exactly that. He even worked incredible miracles. Did everyone believe? Not even close. Almost nobody believed. On the day that the church is born in Acts chapter 2, when they're praying in the upper room, after three years of Jesus teaching, doing miracles, dying, rising from the dead, appearing to hundreds after his death, on the day that the church is born, they're in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, all those who believe in Jesus are gathered together in the upper room praying. How many are there after Jesus' whole ministry? 120. 120 after the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. I actually feel like we're doing pretty good in light of that. So 120 people. Why? Because signs and wonders don't build faith and evidence is not the reason that people don't believe. Signs and wonders just create a hunger for more signs and wonders. That's why Jesus said, signs will follow those who believe. He didn't say those who believe will follow signs. In other words, God will do the miraculous in and through believers, but the supernatural work that God does is just to be a byproduct of following Jesus. It's not to be the thing that we chase after. We're not meant to be running around chasing after people who do miracles and signs. So what does produce faith? Well, it's on your outlines. You've heard this verse before. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, faith comes from hearing and taking in the word of God. It does something supernatural in you. The Israelites were freed from Egypt after seeing one plague after another. They walked across the bottom of the Red Sea on dry land while a wall of water stood on either side of them and then they turned around to see God close it back up over the Egyptian army. They saw the ground open up and swallow people. They were led by God through the wilderness supernaturally by a physical cloud in the day and a levitating pillar of fire at night. They saw God provide food out of thin air. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle more than any group of people has ever seen in history. And yet the Bible tells us that they could not enter the promised land. Why? Because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. You see, all those miracles they saw didn't produce any faith in them. So write this down. Miracles, signs, and wonders don't produce faith. And even Christians, believers, fall into thinking sometimes that signs and wonders mean that a person must be doing things on the Lord's behalf. Well, they, they must be walking with the Lord if they can do that. I've heard this so many times, even about Christian speakers who'd say, listen, the way that guy preaches, I mean, you just know he's walking with the Lord. No, you don't. The Bible says the gifts of God are irrevocable. In other words, if God gifts you this way, you're gifted that way whether you serve the Lord in your private life or not. And for most Christians, they look at people in ministry, whether it's supernatural gifts, healing, or teaching, and they go, well, if they can do that, I mean, that's the evidence right there that they're walking with Jesus. 
But we've just been reminded again, well, well, Satan can do miracles too. And the gifts of God are irrevocable. There are Christian so-called faith healers who do and teach ungodly things. They live ungodly lifestyles. They preach heresy. And yet there's millions of Christians who say, well, well, you know, if, if they weren't walking with the Lord, they wouldn't be able to do these miracles. And Antichrist is going to rise to power on the world stage on the basis of that type of thinking. Unless he really was God, he wouldn't be able to do this stuff. So when someone says, hey, come to our conference, come to our miracles conference, come to our revival service, come and see the signs and wonders, just remember that Jesus worked more miracles than anyone in history, but he didn't promote his ministry that way. He didn't tell his disciples, go and tell everyone I'm going to be doing some amazing tricks today. Tell them to come on out. He taught them. And then he healed people because he could. They were there and he loved people. That's why he did it. So be sober-minded and recognize that seeing signs and wonders won't produce faith in you. Receiving and believing God's word is what produces faith. Well, wait a minute, Jeff. Didn't you say earlier that Antichrist is going to rise to great power very quickly on the world political stage because he's going to perform physical and political miracles and now you're saying that miracles don't produce faith? Well, in verse 11, Paul's gonna tell us that something unique is going to happen which will make people believe that Antichrist miracles are evidence that he's God. Let's pick it up in verse 10 as Paul tells us what else Antichrist will arrive on the world stage with. It says in verse 10, he'll arrive with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because, underline because, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, underline the whole rest of verse 11, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here's what's going to happen. God is gonna send a strong delusion to everyone who doesn't wanna believe in him. And this strong delusion is gonna cause all of them to believe the lie that Antichrist is God. So let's write this down and then we'll talk about it and explain it a bit better. In the day of the Lord, in that time of judgment after the rapture, those who do not want to receive Jesus will be sent a strong delusion by the Lord which will cause them to believe that Antichrist is God. God knows the heart of, of every person, every person, and he knows the future. He knows who is never going to receive him as Lord, regardless of the evidence. And what God will sometimes do is make the person who would not believe so that they cannot believe. And the Bible seems to indicate that those who reject Jesus as their God will receive different consequences in eternity based on the level of revelation they received in their earthly life. So the more revelation you received about Jesus, the more egregious it becomes when you reject his offer of salvation. And so if God knows that a person will never choose to receive them, it would be merciful of him to make them so that they cannot believe because they won't be held accountable for any further rejection of truth. God will be able to say, from this point on, I made you so that you could not believe, so you're not accountable for not believing from that point. 
Additionally, if God knows that a person will never choose to receive him, he's also free to use them as part of his plan, however he chooses. That's actually true for all of us. Whether we receive him or not, he's free to use us as part of his plan, however he wants. In the Bible, we see God do this with Pharaoh in Egypt, the same Pharaoh we're talking about who had the confrontation with Moses and Aaron. God allowed him to see plague after plague after plague, supernatural evidence that he really was God, he really was with Moses, he really was with Aaron, and hey, Pharaoh, you should listen because here's the evidence right in front of you. But what happened is Pharaoh just hardened his own heart. He just became determined, no, I'm not gonna give in to God. I am Pharaoh, I am God. Don't care what God does, I'm never gonna give in. So he sees miracle after miracle after miracle. He hardens his heart against God and he gets to the point where the Lord finally says, okay, Pharaoh, now I'm gonna harden your heart. You would not believe and so now I will make it so that you cannot believe and you're gonna play a role in my story. It's not gonna be a fun one. The Canaanites and other pagan peoples in the promised land built some of the most wicked and evil cultures the world has ever seen. Stuff I can't even talk about in church. God gave them centuries to repent of their wickedness, to turn away from it, but they wouldn't. And so finally they got to the point where God said, I will make it so that you cannot repent. And they were destroyed by the Israelites. Jesus, when he was on the earth, began to speak in parables at a certain point in his ministry because the Pharisees and other Jews would not believe. Let me read to you from Matthew 13. It says this, and the disciples came and said to him, they said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, why are you now talking in parables all of a sudden? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, for that reason, I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So here's what Jesus is saying. God gives you some revelation. If you receive it, and you run with it, God gives you more revelation, more revelation. But if God gives you revelation, and you say, no, I'm not interested, don't want that, don't want that right now, no, don't really want that, not ever. Jesus says, here's what's gonna happen, that little bit will be taken from them, and any revelation they had will be taken from them. Because they would not believe they can reach the point where God will make them so that they cannot believe. So Jesus began to speak in parables because everyone who responded to his message, who desired the truth, was able to hear him teach and they could track with him and understand what he was actually teaching about. But the people who had no interest in truth, they would hear Jesus preach a parable and they'd say, this is the story about a guy in a field and seed being thrown on the ground and is this, is this a, like are we farming wrong? What's going on? Like they wouldn't have any idea what was going on. If you respond to the truth God gives you, he'll give you more. If you reject it, he'll take from you what you have and eventually he'll take away your ability to ever recognize the truth again. When on Palm Sunday, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and his people, he declared that because they would not believe, 
because the Jews as a people would not believe, they would be made unable to believe. And Paul in Romans chapter 11 tells us that even today, up till now, there's a small group of Jews who will always believe in Jesus at every point in history in the New Testament era. But outside of them, Paul tells us that the Jews are under a partial hardening. Because they would not receive Jesus, God has hardened their hearts so that they cannot receive Jesus until he comes back in the second coming and reveals himself to them. Romans 1 applies to everyone, including you and I. And I think I've shared before when I've shared this. I consider Romans 1 to be one of the most terrifying passages in the whole Bible if you actually understand what it's talking about. It's talking about this idea that if God gives you revelation and you reject it over and over and over again, he'll eventually stop giving it to you. But not only that, he'll remove your ability to even recognize what is true. It goes further than that. He'll eventually remove your ability to even recognize what is reality. Because if you cannot grasp and recognize truth, you cannot grasp reality. It's impossible. Truth is our tether to reality. It's our anchor point to reality. And so when we reject truth, we begin severing our ties to actual reality and we begin to just lose our grip on what is and is not actually real. So let me read some of it to you. It's on your outlines. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, underline suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul is saying, if you wanna know what the wrath of God looks like right now on the earth, this is what it looks like. This is what God's wrath looks like. It's basically psychological and spiritual against those who suppress the truth. So they know what it is, but they push it down within themselves and say, I don't want it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, he's saying these people had revelation of God within themselves because God has shown it to them. And we, he talks about later in Romans just the conscience that every human has, innately understanding some of the basics of right and wrong. People know this, but some people suppress this stuff within themselves. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, that's you and I, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, he's saying every person can look around them at the creation God has made and see God in creation and the order of creation all around them. And they're without excuse because of this. They can't say I didn't know there was a God when God is revealed all around them. Because although they knew God, even those who don't believe, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, here's the scary part, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Here's what he's saying. He's saying as they rejected God, as people reject God, they create their own gods. Some people make idols and he's just saying, do you, do you understand how futile a person's thinking is when you look at the glory of the world around them and then you literally carve something out of wood yourself and say, this is God. 
Paul is saying the only way that that can happen is, is when a person has suppressed the truth to the point that that actually makes sense to them. This is God, this is what it's all about. We see examples of this in our own culture where we see people who literally worship the earth. They worship the earth and, and the mother goddess of the earth and the earth energy. And you look at that and you think, why wouldn't you ask the question, where did the earth come from? And why wouldn't you worship the guy who made it? Why wouldn't you worship that force or that power? It's because we become futile in our thinking because we suppress the truth. Because the great thing is, if you want to suppress the truth, you can create a God for yourself that will let you do whatever you want. That's what's so great about creating your own God. You can do whatever you want because you can make up that God. He says here, keeping going, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. So literally God says, listen, oh, okay, you, you, you wanna do that? You wanna suppress the truth? Well, here's what I'm gonna do. That part of your conscience that knows right from wrong, I'm just gonna begin to remove that from you so that you can actually do all those things that you wanna do. You wanna sin, you wanna reject God, go for it, go for it. Destroy yourselves if that's what you wanna do. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't wanna even think about God in their mind, so God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then Paul goes on to say that as a result of their willful ignorance of God, they do evil and wicked things and also approve of those who practice them. They approve of those who practice them. And, and I, don't, I don't know about you, but, but to me that is terrifying. It's terrifying. And, and yeah, it explains so much of what we see in our culture. When you look at our culture, and again, I'm not gonna go off into a big rant. My, my goal is to give understanding, not, not to give a rant. But this, this is why we, we don't freak out when we live in a world where people say, listen, you can change your gender by just thinking something different when you wake up tomorrow. You can literally be someone different just by thinking something different. And, and we understand that if you just apply logic, not Christian logic or biblical logic, just philosophical, Socratic logic, if you can do that, there's no logical reason that you can't change your ethnicity when you wake up tomorrow morning too. There's no reason you can't change your height. There's no reason you can't change your hair color. There's no reason based on logic that I can't wake up tomorrow and say, well, well here's the thing. Uh, I identify as a 74-year-old, five-foot-nothing Asian woman today. That's just how I feel, and you need to recognize that reality. And, and, and we look at that, and I, again, I don't say that to, to be mocking or to be silly or anything, but, but just to say, we look at that with logic and we say that, let's be kind, that is illogical. That is absolutely illogical. That makes no sense. And yet our culture increasingly says, no, here's the problem. You're not enlightened enough to understand this. You're just not smart enough. You're regressive. You're Puritan. You're just, you're just not progressive enough to get this. And we look at it and we say, this, this isn't even a, a religious issue. This is just an issue of, of, of science and 
biology and ob observable reality, Jeff. You're not a 74-year-old, five-foot Asian woman. We, we know that because we're all experiencing a different reality to that right now as you're standing in front of us. That's obvious to us, but, but what happens is our world is saying, well, I want to suppress the truth. I want to suppress the truth. And so God terrifyingly is saying, okay, go for it. Go for it. And we begin to lose our grip with reality. That's why someone can stand up and argue passionately for these sorts of things and say that this is science and this is progress because as the word says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And we begin to lose our grip on reality as we reject truth over and over again to the point that we can't even recognize what is actually real and what is not. That's a terrifying, terrifying thing, but it's also why we're not supposed to freak out. I didn't mean to go into this sidebar, but, but I'll share this. Um, I am so thankful for the way the word of God grounds me in reality. Every one of us has our own quirks, right? And um, the thing that makes me good at teaching the Bible, I've shared this before, is just some issues with anxiety. And the thing that has saved my life, I think, as I look back over my life, is coming to the place of understanding that the word of God describes reality for me. It's my anchor to reality. Because the way that I perceive life is, is not always real. The way that I perceive people is not always based on reality. I love to naturally, in my natural self, I love to assume the worst case scenario all the time. I love it. But what the Bible has done is allow me to see reality and embrace that instead of the way I see the world, which is actually broken. It is so valuable to embrace the truth of the Bible. It keeps you grounded in reality. So there's a point where God says, you've received enough revelation, you cannot claim ignorance, and seeing the future, I know that you're never gonna receive the truth. If I gave you more revelation, it would be insulting to the death of Jesus on the cross on your behalf, and it would heap further condemnation upon you. Therefore, because you would not believe, I will now make it so that you cannot believe. And this is exactly what God will do in the time period following the rapture. This is what's gonna happen after the rapture. There will be the Jews, a group of whom will be protected all the way to the end, to the second coming of Christ. They're saved for Jesus. But among everyone else, anyone who can be saved will be saved during that time period of the day of the Lord. If they would ever give their lives to Jesus, they will do it in that time. There will be incredible signs like the rapture, hundreds of millions of people disappearing from the earth. It says that God will raise up 144,000 Jewish missionaries to preach the gospel around the earth in that time. Moses and Elijah will literally return to the streets of Jerusalem and begin preaching. It says an angel's gonna fly around the sky preaching the gospel so the whole world hears. Listen, in that time period, anyone who can be saved will be saved. If there's even a part of them that was like, man, if this God thing was real, I would believe it. They're gonna believe in that time. But here's the other thing. Anyone who does not want to believe will be given what they want. Anyone who does not wanna believe will have their heart hardened and their mind given over to the strong delusion sent by God, quote, that they should believe the lie that Antichrist is God. There will only be a group of protected Jews, people turning to Jesus, 
and people passionately following Antichrist. There'll be no middle ground during that time period. Like Pharaoh, like the Canaanites, like the Jews who caused Jesus to switch to teaching in parables, like the Jewish people who are right now under a partial hardening of their hearts, and like all peoples described in Romans 1, in the day of the Lord, those who refuse to believe will be made unable to believe by this strong delusion that God will send as part of his judgment of the earth. And the lesson is, is a serious one for everyone on the earth today. And here's the lesson. You might not have until your dying breath to make up your mind about Jesus. And there's a lot of people who think they will. Firstly, because death might come upon you unexpectedly and quickly. You might die in a car crash and have no final moments to ponder your mortality and your existential decisions. But secondly, because long before you reach death, you may reach the point where God says, you've had enough revelation that you're now without excuse. If you won't receive me now, I know that you'll never receive me. So that the sacrifice of Jesus may not be further scorned and that your judgment may not be even greater in eternity because you would not believe, I will now make it so that you cannot believe. And so my point is simply this, if you've received the revelation that Jesus is God, if he's done anything in your heart to let you know that is the truth, you have to respond to it now. Do not assume that you have time to make that decision later. You don't know that. You don't know that. If you hear the voice of God today, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart, lest you find later that God has hardened it. Verse 13, Paul goes on and he says now some closing greetings. He says, but we are bound. That means we're under obligation. We meaning him and Silas and Timothy to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Just underline beloved by the Lord because I love that he calls us that. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Do you understand the contrast here again? Like Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians, he said, but you are not appointed for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Again, we see the contrast. He's talking about, listen, there are those people in this future time period coming who don't wanna receive Jesus, so God will make it so that they can't receive Jesus. And then he switches gears to talking about them, and he says, but we have to thank God for you because God chose you from the beginning for salvation by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about this many times, but just to recap, when Paul says God from the beginning chose you for salvation, who does God choose? Well, he chooses those that he knows will choose him using their free will. This is referred to as God's foreknowledge. He knows the future. He knows who will choose him. And out of that foreknowledge, God chooses them. Well, if God knows the future, then doesn't that take away my free will? Not at all. There's absolutely no logic in that type of thinking. You're free to choose God, and if you choose God, you'll find that he's chosen you. Well, what if I choose God, and but he doesn't choose me? It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen, because God chooses those who will choose him. Well, what if I don't wanna choose God? Well, then you're probably not chosen. The choice is yours, but not really. But it is, but it is, but, but also not really, but definitely maybe. 
So now that we've cleared that up, absolutely, that mystery of salvation. Who does God choose? He chooses those he knows will choose him using their free will. How are we saved? Paul says through belief in the truth. When we believe in the truth, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins this work called sanctification. Sanctification is just the process of us being made like Jesus. It's a work that begins the moment we place our faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it's a process that is completed when we arrive in the presence of Jesus and receive our resurrected bodies. It's the moment which the Apostle John wrote about saying when he is revealed, in other words, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be like him, we'll be made like him. That's the moment our sanctification is finished. If you're a Christian, you are being sanctified right now. The Holy Spirit is working on you and in your life. What is the ultimate purpose of our salvation? Paul says the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose of God saving us is that we would be made like Jesus, be with him in the glory of his presence for all eternity. The obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, therefore brethren, so in light of this, knowing all this stuff, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, which means letter. This is a word for you and I all the time, including right now knowing how we were saved by the cross, knowing that God chose you from the beginning, knowing that he gave you the gift of faith to believe, knowing that his spirit is working in your life, knowing that you're being made like Jesus, knowing that your destiny is being with him in glory for eternity, stand fast, hold on, keep the faith, stay strong, hold on to Jesus. Understand what God has done for you, understand what God is doing in you, and understand what God will do for you. God is our past, God is our present, God is our future. He's our beginning, he's our end, he's our alpha and omega, so hold fast. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, would you underline the rest of 16, who has loved us, and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The comfort that God gives us, Paul says, is everlasting. It's everlasting comfort. And what is hope? Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Why do we have good hope, according to Paul? He says, by grace, by grace. We don't have hope because we've earned it. We don't have hope because we deserve it. We have hope because Jesus has been gracious to us. Any hope that depends on us is surely no hope at all. But any hope that depends on Jesus is surely a hope that cannot be shaken. I'll say this in closing. You know, you and I, I just love to think about this. You and I cannot disappoint God. Do you realize that? We cannot disappoint God because he chose us to be his from the beginning. Other places in scripture will say before the foundations of the earth, before the universe was made, he knew who we would be. He knew everything we would do. He knew everything we would do before we gave our lives to him but he knew everything that we would still do, every sin we would still commit after we gave our lives to him. He knew all of it. 
There's nothing we do that surprises him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knew all of that when he made the decision before we ever existed to die for us. He loves us. And and here's the thing. His love for us is the very thing that makes us good enough for him. His love for us is the very thing that makes us good enough for him because his love for us led him to the cross where he died in our place so that we could have his righteousness instead of our own. There's nothing we can do that disappoints God. He knows it all and he loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. So enjoy his presence. Enjoy his presence, church. Don't miss Jesus because you're worshiping the scriptures instead of worshiping the one that the scriptures point to. They all point to him. The whole universe points to Jesus. It's all about him. So don't don't miss that. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we love you, Jesus. And um, Lord, we don't want to miss you amongst our love for your word. And we do love your word. We love your word because no matter what's going on in our life, we, we can pick it up and we can read it. And, and, and we are. We're, we're suddenly connected to you. We're reminded about who you are and what you're like. And we know that you are in every word. You're in every sentence. You're in every letter. You're on every page. Um, but Father, we don't want to fall into the trap of loving your word and not loving the word, which is you. And we don't need more head knowledge, Lord. We need more of you. And so we want to read the scriptures to know more of you. But we want you more than anything, even more than the scriptures, Lord. We want you. So may our love for your word cause us to grow in love for you, Jesus. And I pray even now for just any among us who have felt disconnected from you, Father, would you just meet us in this moment with your presence, God? Take us back uh, past all our academic pursuits to a, a point and a place where it's just you. We just want you, God. For that simple love, Lord, that first love that we had for you, wanting more of you, just wanting to be with you. Lord, we ask that you would do that right now among us, Father. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.